Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Open House, London's biggest festival of architecture and community, kicks off today. Questions over new Prime Minister Liz Truss's vision to tackle the energy crisis. More people than ever seeking warmth and shelter on London's night buses. And urban parks left reeling after a summer of drought, wildfires and underfunding. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The Lundown. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Zoe Cave. Zoe is Chief Curator of the Open House Festival. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, guys. Really nice to be here. Today marks the start of the 30th Open House Festival, a two-week celebration of architecture, spaces, communities and neighbourhoods across London. You may have seen posters on the Underground Network, articles and interviews in Time Out, The AJ and Dezine, or you may have even heard Chief Curator Zoe Cave on BBC Radio London this week. Hosted by Open City, the free festival unlocks buildings from some of London's most iconic architecture to seminal housing estates and community spaces with a packed programme of events, neighbourhood walks, architect talks, tours and more. Highlights of the annual event, which spotlights compelling new and old architecture and urban landscapes in all of London's 33 boroughs, include Richard and Sue Rogers' high-tech house in Wimbledon, the Bank of England and Straw Bale House by Sarah Wigglesworth and Jeremy Till. Other landmarks opening for free to the public include Mansfield Road, designed by Benson and Forsyth for Camden Council, Room, an inhabitable sculpture by Anthony Gormley, forming part of Mayfair's Beaumont Hotel, and the Leather Cellars Hall Livery Company, refurbished by Eric Parry Architects. Since its launch in London in 1992, the Open House Festival has now expanded to cities across the globe, from Lagos to New York engaging approximately 750,000 people a year, with a quarter of a million people descending on London alone. Open City director Phineas Harper said, quote, For me, this shows that far from being disinterested, the general public is absolutely fascinated by the city around them and will seize the opportunity to explore and discuss it. So, Zoe, uh, this is the first year Open House Festival has had a chief curator. Uh, what should visitors expect? The programme this year is... Well, I'd like to think it's like the most diverse and dynamic programme we've had, um, for which I really can't take credit. I think that this year has seen the most amazing contributions from Londoners who have some sort of relationship with a building in London, whether that, that is that they rent, live, own, whether they work there, volunteer there, some sort of connection to it. And the things that we're seeing opening and what people are planning to do 
has just grown in terms of like ambition, creativity. And it's really exciting. And it's really interesting. And it's amazingly generous from these people who are doing this on, you know, um, they're opening up these spaces so that other Londoners can learn and explore from them. My hunch is that post-pandemic, people have changed their understanding about what opening can be a catalyst for. Um, And I think that, you know, relationships with their local area has changed. And I think because of that, we're seeing some really, really interesting stuff. So, yeah, so what to expect for visitors? Hold on to your hats, guys. It's going to be wild out there. No, but there's there's amazing things, like amazing tours and walking tours around the actual city itself, We're seeing a real range of like homes opening up. So rather than just things that are seen as being, you know, architecturally beautiful, it's we we really push the team and I really push this year of the idea that if it's special to you, it will be interesting to someone else. Like it doesn't have you don't have to be an architectural historian, a designer. You don't have to live in something that's like classically beautiful. It's about opening up, inviting people in um, and having having a good old time. It is a festival after all. I mean, I think one of the things that's amazing, obviously, the festival has been running for 30 uh, years now. And obviously, throughout that time, uh, it's changed enormously and also kind of evolved in line uh, with the city. I mean, I think if I cast my mind back when I was doing my art GCSE, some of the students would bring in the catalogue and they'd be talking about going to the Swiss Re, the Gherkin, or like the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, these like big institutions. But now, if you look at the festival, you get the impression it really is focusing strongly on the idea of community and neighbourhood uh, and also really um, spotlighting the amazing social housing, for example, that exists in London, maybe stuff that wasn't so prominent in the festival in the past. Um, why is Open House such a good medium for exploring these really pressing topical urban issues of our time? Like, why is that coming through more and more in the present age? We're just seeing what, what it feels like at the moment is just like a complete peak or like hyper intensity of social issues, which are always even more heightened in a city in an urban context because we are also cheek by jowl. So I think in part, these issues that have sort of before been slightly more like marginalised, have always been there for a lot of people and are creeping in more and more and becoming more prevalent and more pressing and more urgent for more people, which is then heightened, I think, because of the, uh, the nature of urban, uh, urban setting. But I think the thing with open house in particular is that, so firstly, as an architectural, like an architectural cultural programme, I think it does an amazing job of throwing the sort of the hierarchy out the window of what is good architecture and what is worth celebrating and what is worthy of spotlighting it completely throws that out um we then can put something we can then put buildings that have previously been marginalized or just invisibilized or just ignored we can kind of put them right next to buildings that have been iconized uh basically have been put up on a pedestal and you can kind of put those things side by side so I think because you can then, we're flattening out that hierarchy, we're seeing how all of these things, they all come together to make up an, to make up an urban fabric. They can't just be isolated from each other. And then the ability of the festival to then, most importantly, platform the people who have the relationships with those buildings in a, giving them access to a platform where you can engage in all of these Londoners in a way that apart from really something like social media, you you. I don't know anywhere else that you can do that like Open House does. So it's this idea that there will be a community or an individual who uses the platform because they have another form of motivation or campaign that they want to share with either their local community or with other Londoners. So 
you know, opening for to share something that's beautiful, that's great. And there's lots of that in the festival. It's beautiful buildings that you can go and explore. But I, and what I want to be able to support more is the, the groups of the people who want to use the festival because they have something they feel really strongly about. And Open House is an incredible platform to be able to share and engage other people with. And then to come back to the nub of the question, for a lot of people who have something that they need to be campaigning or advocating for, it's normally around some sort of issue that without a platform like Open House, they wouldn't necessarily, not they wouldn't necessarily, but Open House offers such a great value to be able to share what that urban issue is, bring attention to it in a really personable and face-to-face way and really understanding why it is an issue for them, how it affects their life is a way of like building understanding and from understanding we build empathy. So for instance, like there are these amazing, coming back to the social housing, the estates that you mentioned, these for a really long time have been, you know, slandered by governments, successive governments as being concrete monstrosities, sink estates. And now we're seeing, a, you know, a painful acceleration of demolition. However, these estates, whether they're being threatened with demolition, regenerate, whatever, if we get them in the festival, which we have an amazing collection of for this festival, and by doing that, we're saying, firstly, this place is worthy of exploring. This person is who owns and lives here is has a lot to often to say about this. You get inside all these different places, you walk around the grounds, maybe you see, yeah, that's looking a bit tatty and that's looking a bit sad, fine. But you speak to these people about it and then you, when you see in the news that that estate is, you know, the people, are, it's threatened with demolition or the people are being asked to move out, maybe they'll be able to come back into it. And you've been there and you've seen it yourself and you've spoken to a person, you've seen how much all of the different ages and the people all love and experience and have a, such a connection to that and you see that under threat. I like to think that Open House just becomes part of the process by which we like try and empathise and understand with more people around us so that when what they have is put at risk, we have a more vested stake in pushing against them. I think it's absolutely, yeah, it's fascinating. And I really think that often you visit places in Open House and they do treat it as an opportunity to communicate that activism. Um, say, for example, Cressingham Gardens in Tolls Hill, the, the housing estate threatened with demolition, and there'd be a whole kind of museum space with displays about the campaigns to save the buildings. Uh, I recall visiting uh, Stanley Arts in South Norwood, uh, where they've got a fascinating museum documenting the building, but also what they're doing to keep the building alive and to grow it. And just thinking about open house from a kind of user experience, like, it's such a powerful moment. And often the places you go, they kind of live on in your memories, these like halcyon days. Um, and I think, what is there something about going inside new places, doing it in September? Like, it feels like you're kind of starting anew. And that, that raw and amazing emotional experience, pairing it with that activism, does that kind of like turbocharge uh, the power that Open House has for change? There's a really great, and I'm sure loads of listeners will have heard of it, but there is a like a social theorist who talks about anomie in the city and the idea that actually a huge coping mechanism for people who live in such a stimulating and intense urban environment, one of the best coping mechanisms that we have come to create, but it's ignoring each other. And it's this thing of like the idea that if you can just keep your head down and not socially engage that is a very definite social act in itself. And I think that 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 is applied to each other. I also think that it can be applied to buildings, this idea that 
you create out of just sort of, for a lot of people, out of ease, out of maybe efficiency, out of just pure sort of survival mode, you create your little like rat run tracks that you do your day to day. You walk past certain buildings and actually the the way to not sort of get overly stimulated or overly, overly overwhelmed <laughs> Um, is that you kind of just like draw a blank or you you sort of have a quite like blinkered focus on it. Whereas I think the thing with open house, the magic of just being able to step into a building, not having to, to necessarily like book a ticket, but just being able to like pop in to see it, pass a building that you might have walked past all of those times is a really great way of creating like a deep, like that sort of connection that otherwise in most of your day-to-day life it's really hard to quantify but it is just that act of just like stepping into a building that you wouldn't otherwise be able to talking and connecting with the people who have a relationship with it that is just there is just nothing like it this year's program is brimming with amazing spaces uh what are some of your highlights highlights it's not about me and my highlights it's about making sure that everyone feels confident and comfortable with navigating the mammoth program i think we're up to like 800 things that are running this the, over the two weeks so um there what i would say is that we've got these amazing collections on the website um which hopefully will help take the sort of the, the big expansive program and get it into like manageable chunks so there's like different types of housing that you can go see there's also the drop-ins collection because i know that if you're new to the open house and you visit the site and it looks like things are booked up there's a plethora of things I, I've always been a drop-in person. Go to the drop-ins, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's stuff that basically means you don't have to queue. I uh, don't have you might queue. You don't have to book tickets. Um, but other, and the other things that I'm really highlights for me is the these different guest curators that we've had on board. So we've had um, different Londoners who've come across, who've come along, and basically this is their take on what you should go and see or what they want to be included as part of the program. So we had Janet Street Porter. Two highlights from hers is the Fog House. So that's her house in Clerkenwell that she commissioned David Ajay to do and they had a very big public falling out over. But also Fitzrovia Chapel. And then we've had Shahed Salim. Um, we've just got, I think, it's pretty much like on the brink of going live, but we've got the East London Mosque uh, and Toynbee Hall. So those are part of Shahed's collections. And then we've got writer Harriet Thorpe and she has done it all around sustainable architecture. So we've got Bedzed and Sands End Community Centre in Fulham. Um, so yeah, there are the, they are. There's collections if you need some help getting to grips with it. There's the map feature if you need to just like go in hyper local, uh, and then there's some amazing people who have helped who we've worked with this year to get a, to get their collections together. This week we learned to little surprise that Liz Truss beat fellow contender Rishi Sunak in the Conservative Party leadership election, winning 57% of the votes to become the UK's third female Prime Minister. In her winning speech, Truss said, quote, I know that our beliefs resonate with the British people. Our beliefs in freedom, in the ability to control your own life, in low taxes, in personal responsibility. I will deliver a bold plan to cut taxes and grow our economy. I will deliver on the energy crisis, dealing with people's energy bills, but also deal with the long-term issues we have on energy supply. We will deliver. We will deliver. We will deliver. On Monday, Richard Way reported on the architecture industry's reaction to Truss's win in the AJ. RIBA president Simon Alford said her appointment was a chance for the government to refocus, urging Truss to kickstart a nationwide retrofit programme and to look again at reforms to the planning system, adding that she had a, quote, colossal task on her hands. 
He went on to say, while some form of immediate relief is clearly vital, trust must also prioritise long-term energy efficiency improvements. According to Alford, this includes protecting funding for the energy company obligation and implementing a national retrofit strategy to significantly reduce home energy consumption and create thousands of jobs across the country. Meanwhile, Russell Curtis of RCKA Architects said he found it quite difficult to imagine anyone sensible greeting Liz Truss's victory with satisfaction. He said, Truss is clearly correct that our nation's productivity is pitiful, but unless she's prepared to take drastic steps to fundamentally reform the planning system, particularly when it comes to infrastructure, by removing strategic decision-making from local political interference and classifying house building as vital infrastructure too, prospects for the immediate future look very bleak indeed. So, Zoe... Uh, This is such a critical time for people struggling to keep up with inflation, the cost of living and looming energy bills. uh, And the need for strong, competent leadership is stronger now than ever. Uh, What are some of the biggest challenges facing Londoners in particular in this current climate? And um, how does this stack up against what we know so far about Liz Truss's priorities? I really hope I deliver, deliver, deliver on this answer. So at the moment, if I'm correct, we don't really know what her policies are yet, right? So at the moment, we are we are taking her idea, well, what she's calling beliefs, but this like pure political ideology, that's what we're working with. So that's how I'll try and answer this question. The biggest challenges facing Londoners is something like 28% of people live in poverty, and that's higher than the UK average. 56% of Londoners' income goes on rent compared to 37% in the rest of the country. So everyone knows that London is really expensive. Like it li- like London had its own cost of living crisis before the cost of living crisis, I would say. The margin the margins of being a Londoner are so slim. If something goes wrong in any capacity, there's such a minimal buffer between it all just going completely wrong. And I think that that leaves a lot of Londoners in a really precarious position. Even if you're working, you're still at risk of being in poverty. And that for Londoners, that it's such an expensive city. And so much of that goes on the cost of, of keeping a roof over your head. We kind of get the, the context within which Liz Truss is, is coming in. And that's not to say that the rest of the UK aren't like really affected, but we are talking about London. So we'll just keep zooming in on that. So then Liz trots onto the scene with her beliefs to deliver, deliver, deliver. But like these ideologies are very much at odds with the reality of like what a lot of people, of what most of us are having to grapple with at the moment. So this idea of like individual freedom and control over our, la- our lives and then low taxes. So like the idea that individual responsibility has any waiting to help what people are faced with at the moment is just so insulting it's just so insulting like don't get me started on kettles like this is insulting because what individual responsibility does is it hyper individualizes the the situation which is like it's like structural and it's like well with it's so far beyond individuals ability to make good heavily inverted commas make good decisions. So I think that at the moment, Londoners don't need to be told that it's their individual responsibility as to why they are there and 
their individual responsibility to get themselves out of the situation they're in, whether that's currently in poverty, whether that's close to poverty. It's also like individual responsibility is so at odds with, with the sort of level of like collective thinking and action that we should be looking towards. Because actually what is in, is in individuals' responsibility is you could translate that into individual interest. And at the moment, with a state that won't look after you, as we're watching like the NHS be eroded, watching education, these sort of like last pillars of the state, just like crumbling before us. So if, if this state won't look after you, it's individually responsible to line your pockets and shore up resources so that you will be okay against this. And that is something that's only really available to a very small percentage of people. And then I think, yeah, the last one with like low taxes. Yeah, because that's it. Liz Trust, she has set out a clear agenda yeah. that she will be cutting taxes. So cutting taxes potentially means more money in people's pockets. Is that going to make a difference? But not VAT. Is I think they're still planning on keeping VAT yeah. at like at the 20%, whereas if they were to put it down to 15, it would save like... £1,300 a year for most people on like lower incomes. So yes, my understanding of like the low taxes is that it's still, it still subscribes to this idea of trickle down economics. So the idea that if you are able to make these sort of changes through, ta- through cutting taxes, the wealth and the prosperity that will benefit those at the top will trickle down and benefit everyone else. But I think that we've seen that, you know, time and again, this doesn't, hasn't been working. And I think what's really interesting is that you see it in London particularly, in a really like physical way, that there has been lots of investment in London. And we've seen this with these kind of like big developments, but they become enclaves. They, you, you're pouring money in, but they become these sort of like these places that are completely divorced from the surrounding urban fabric and urban life. And I think that that's a really like physical example of how trickle down economics just doesn't work because it's in the interest of wealth and profit and gain and extraction of profit to keep money within a very few hands. And so actually there isn't there really isn't much of a trickle down. And I think you can see that in like how London is developed, that you get these almost like gated communities that might not physically have a gate, but there is like very much a firm boundary where like that wealth is kept within that like quite um tight pocket. And it it just it feels like becoming more entrenched in that conservative idea of like the state should be doing less individuals and businesses and that entrepreneurial spirit should be doing more but like it doesn't it's just not it's so close to all imploding the imf published findings this week showing that the energy crisis hitting the uk is going to be um, more impactful it's going to be worse here than anywhere else in western europe Um, adding that the cost burden deficit between rich and poor households is also the most unequal here. Um, so Zoe, why is our housing stock consistently performing so badly compared to all of our near neighbours? And um, what sort of leadership from the Prime Minister do we need to fix this problem? So my understanding from looking into this is that one of the, the huge issues with the UK is insulation. So apparently there are less deaths in Scandinavia due to the cold than in the UK, which is like really mind blow mind blowing it turns out insulation who'd have thought when poor insulate britain were like trying so hard to tell us that is the the crux of the problem clearly we haven't we've just sort of been like throwing ourselves around not quite knowing what to do 
And all of the stuff is there if we would only swallow our British pride and look elsewhere to see how other people are doing it. The other thing that's really interesting is that hot countries are really into their insulation as well. Um, so Australia are doing pretty good things. Trap it, the, the in, well insulating homes really well means that you can then trap cold air into the house. So for any of these sort of um, places in Australia which can go up to 45 degrees and then down to zero, um, having well insulated houses is really important. And I think we've also just seen from this summer in the UK, we could also benefit from learning from that as well. The crux of this, and it kind of comes back down to the, the previous question, is at the moment, the UK sees housing as an asset. And the housing still sells with, and it still gets rented with or without insulation. Um, and the people who protest around it get demonised, and our protest rights are being withdrawn. And yeah, so I think that for me, one of the absolute crux of it is that there, there is no urgency because housing is an asset, it still sells, it still makes people a lot of money, it will still get rented with or without it. New figures reveal a four-fold increase in rough sleepers finding warmth and shelter on London's night buses over the past decade. Vice World News revealed this week that TfL bus drivers reported 2,042 cases of rough sleeping on night buses between April 2020 and March 21, a number which has increased by 83% over the past four years. With spiralling energy bills expected to push 45 million people into fuel poverty by January amid a cost of living crisis, this number is expected to rocket this winter. The N15 bus route between Romford in the East and Oxford Circus has the highest number of rough sleepers. Homelessness charities say this could be due to it being one of the longest routes, and one of which goes through some of the poorest East London areas to major rough sleeping areas in the West End. Charities warn that those seeking emergency shelter are more likely to be women or older people, and London's night buses, notorious for occasionally carrying drunk and noisy passengers, are often unsafe places to seek shelter and sleep. Reports of sexual harassment on public transport almost doubled in the four years up to 2018, and more than half of women in the capital have experienced sexual harassment on London's tubes, trains and buses. A spokesperson for the homelessness charity Centrepoint said, quote, For many of the young people we support who have found themselves in similar situations, a bus can feel safer than being outside on the streets. In reality, however, even a well-lit and CCTV-monitored bus is no place for a young person, and they can still be uh, finding themselves exposed to verbal, physical and sexual assault. They went on to say, The worry we have is that with rising energy bills and other costs, we are only just seeing the beginning of a trend here. Zoe, we know, thanks to the Open House Festival, that London has some truly amazing housing, you know, both these architect-designed private dwellings and also pioneering social housing. Um, We also know that as as of last year, there were just shy of 90,000 vacant homes in the capital, equating to roughly £130 billion worth of real estate. Um, How on earth are we in a situation where people are resorting to rough sleeping on potentially dangerous buses uh, in in a city like this? It all comes back to this thing about successive governments since late 1970s housing has been seen as an asset and for the majority of our housing to be able to access to be to be accessed you have to have a certain level of wealth to be able to unlock it and i think that particularly what we're seeing now is that that as the the welfare state has been withdrawn accepting welfare or having any access to welfare is really stigmatized it's around like handouts the housing is really it, 
you know, inaccessible in like the most violent way. And then if you can't access that, the safety net that is provided in other countries by the state is doesn't exist. The thing around it is it also just goes to show that the idea of solving the housing crisis to build more homes, that sort of quite like simplistic answer doesn't really add up because here we can see that we potentially have lots of spare homes, but we're not putting those who most need it into the homes that they need. I think also what this shows is that if you don't have homes to put people in, or if those people can't access homes, the problem doesn't go away. You just like marginalise it more and more, and people have to become more desperate and create other ways of creating shelter for themselves, whether that's like the camps in San Francisco or the, yeah, people having to like sleep on night buses. People, it's... They don't just sort of disappear. You can't just like decant them. Um, Although I know there are some boroughs who don't have any hostels and have the most outreach officers possible to simply move people into other boroughs. Um, So the point is, is that you you can't just move people around. Like the problem would exist because you haven't put the infrastructure there. You haven't put the safety net there to capture it. So you can't invisibilize this as much as like we have tried to do. As we emerge from one of the hottest, driest summers in London's history, we reflect on how a transformation of our urban parks could help keep city temperatures cool and green throughout heatwaves. It's a topic that motivated London so much in recent weeks that high-profile columnists like Dan Hancock and Phineas Harper, director of Open City, wrote compelling opinion pieces on both the problems facing our green spaces and the solutions which may be within our grasp. Many of today's urban parks are modelled on the garden designs of 18th and 19th century aristocrats, complete with expansive lawns, the occasional tree, and often architectural follies uh, and lakes, things like that, water. Um, These are hugely water-intensive spaces uh, and prove to be quite susceptible to drought, um, as this summer, the driest since records began in 1836, demonstrated when London's parks turned yellow and even sparked wildfires. Uh, Not only are they unsuitable for a heating climate, but parks, one of our last truly free public spaces, are being critically underfunded too. A Guardian investigation found that local authorities in England are spending £330 million less a year on parks in real terms than they were a decade ago. In a desperate attempt to plug gaping holes in their budgets, local councils are increasingly allowing commercial festivals into parks for ticketed events, effectively semi-privatising large portions of London's green spaces over the summer months. Uh, Open City's Finn Harper wrote last week, quote, to reduce ground temperatures and keep urban green spaces habitable and verdant, even in 40 degree summers, a radical shift in landscape design is needed. Uh, Citing scientific evidence that trees hold vastly greater drought resistance, biodiversity shade and flood flood resistance than grass, Uh, they went on to say, quote, British parks could retain plenty of space for frisbee, football and picnics while supporting 75 million new trees. So why are green spaces important to preserve in the first place and what benefits do they provide to Londoners today? One of the great things about our parks are they are the sort of the ultimate public space. So they are like incredibly social. They are an amazing way of meaning that we can live in little flats, but actually not feel that compromised if you can get yourself to a park. There's quite... Apparently, quite a convincing argument in favour of foresting our urban parks. You know, I have to admit that um, 
Uh, they're looking very green now, <laughs> but cycling around certainly South London, uh, Clapham Common was extremely parched <laughs> a few weeks ago, uh, like worryingly so. Um, um, the evidence points to this could lead to a more biodiverse, cooler and drought and flood resistant city uh, than what we currently have with these big open spaces. Um, why is it uh, that we're so hung up on this kind of 18th century idea of beauty, which pa- prioritizes those big lawns that you see in somewhere like Blackheath, <laughs> you know, over something else, which could be more uh, trees and shrub like. If we think about the context of it, that period of time of creating those parks, like that was a period where Western imperialism was showing that it could tame nature. And it was all about rationalizing like the, the sort of the wilderness. And we were doing it here in the UK and we were definitely doing it all over the rest of the world. Um, and as we have come to show, we're all still weirdly obsessed about stuff that happened in that like mega period of imperialism. And it was all about beauty in inverted commas, like beauty and order and rationalizing like nature. Um, but I'm sure there will be people who would be annoyed if they lost their big, like beautiful, expansive lawns. But that's fine. Get a National Trust membership. There's loads of lovely gardens and lawn places that you can go. But yeah, I'm I'm pro. I'm pro some of the parts being for, like reforested and i do think that some level of big like big expansive space so that you can play your rounders and what's the, the swedish game where you throw your bags at the or your blocks at the blocks and like i think i'm a people pleaser we can have both so i'm thinking you know open house festival is coming up it's a festival of buildings but actually uh, working on the festival, working alongside you, I think of it as a festival of outdoor spaces and landscapes as well. Um, what kind of parks and green spaces do we have in this year's programme? And, and what, what should someone, where should someone go if they're really looking to see the kind of best future of London's landscape tradition? So, yeah, we've got some um, amazing landscape uh, in the festival. We've got allotments, we've got various... Um, different sorts of gardens but we've also got things like you know Waterloo City Farm which kind of feeds into that like indoor outdoor thing um we've got the Canal Park by JNL Gibbons um so that's just what's on the western edge of the Queen Elizabeth Park um which as you just mentioned Merlin there's like lots of different sort of like landscaping that's going on um and it's an interesting example of when doing a new piece of city, how you sort of like how landscaping is playing more more and more of an important part. But we see across all of these diff- different developments how there is a huge varying degree of success and failure. Um, so I think that yeah, Canal Park is a really good example, and J and L Gibbons are a really great example of a landscape architect where who will go and really kind of give you a, an amazing insight into what urban landscaping is about. We're now on to the culture section, uh, which is fantastic. We're going to talk about outdoor swimming. There's still a few more weeks uh, where you can swim outside in London. Uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners um, were tempted or even maybe gave it a go over the last few weeks. It was extremely hot. I certainly uh, certainly saved my life on one or two days uh, when it was really, really hot. Um, visiting amazing places like Tooting Lido, uh, an outdoor unheated Lido in southwest London. Uh, we're going to focus right now on a tweet uh, which brought to our attention uh, that Charlton Lido in southeast London is apparently going to have solar panels fitted. Uh, those will power new eco pumps. 
uh, that are aiming to allow Charlton Lido to be the first carbon neutral pool in the UK uh, and will allow it to stay open this winter with temperatures set at 22 degrees. Now, 22 degrees, it's very comfortable. Um, I think the unheated tooting Lido uh, rarely gets to 22 degrees. So whenever I've swam in it, it's about 12 degrees, uh, which is fine. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, pretty exciting stuff. What do you think, Zoe? Um, I mean, it's... Uh, it is a big part of our culture, and it's a growing part of it. And um, anything that can sort of open it up to more people, surely, uh, you know, people who don't like cold water, for example, is a good thing. I mean, yeah, lots of Londoners love the Lidos. I love the Lidos. We all love the Lidos. Um, my favourite was the one, the Oasis in Holborn, that I used to swim. That that's heated, and I'd swim in that in like winter, and it'd be amazing because you'd be sw- swimming, and it would be like steaming and you could barely see the sort of heads like little like lycra heads like bobbing up and down swimming through the pools but I love it so the fact that we could achieve that and make it carbon neutral is like a very exciting proposition but there's also one of those things where like green green infrastructure I think if people can see it in a really tangible way like this solar panel is heating this outdoor pool which means that I get to swim here in the middle of December is a really um, nice sort of like a bubble of an example of how great the green infrastructure can be. Um, Would love to see it supported by our new government. Zoe, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on The Lundown this week. Hope you can join us again. And um, very much looking forward to Open House Festival. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I admire so much what you do. Keep the news coming. been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.